Good morning. I see a guy wearing a Packers sweatshirt over there. You know, I'm from Wisconsin, so thank you for showing up for me. You're making me feel at home. Like Pastor John said, so, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 7. And so if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Uh, the next three weekends at New Life Church are going to be really special weekends. First of all, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And that is exciting for many reasons. We celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But do you know what is also happening next Sunday? Pastor Brady is back preaching. Yes. He's been warming up his vocal cords. He was preaching down in Texas this week. He's preaching this morning. So uh, he's been out of the pulpit for a few months. Be ready is what I'm saying. He's going to come with some fire. So Palm Sunday, next Sunday. And then the weekend after that, of course, is Easter weekend. And so right here on Friday night, Good Friday, 6.30 p.m., the Friday night congregation and the North congregation will come together for worship. Make sure to mark that in your calendar. It's going to be a really, really special service. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, three services in here, 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and noon. And so bring all of your friends and your family, your grandma, your grandpa, your nieces and nephews, your service animals. Well, if you need it, you can. But let's fill up the house of God for worship. It's going to be a great weekend. Amen. And then after that, oh yeah, one more thing I have to say. Uh, following Easter Sunday weekend, uh, we always have baptism weekend, which is amazing. Have you, any of you been a part of a baptism weekend here at New Life North? Just shockingly beautiful. And so if the Lord's been doing a work in your heart lately, and you'd like to make the decision to say publicly, I belong to Jesus Christ, baptism weekend is for you. And so make sure to let us know that, and we'll get you all signed up and ready to go. Sound good? We're in the Sermon on the Mount. This will be the last sermon that we preach on this. It's been uh, such a wonderful ride. And Jesus... Really, in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he's forming us in the way of the kingdom of God. He's leading us out of all of the chaos of our society into the depths of the Father's good intentions for us. And so he has led us out of anger. He's led us out of fear. He's led us, as we've journeyed through these chapters, he's led us into sexual wholeness and healing. He's taught us how to love our enemies. He's taught us how to pray. He's taught us how to fast. He's taught us how to do good works without needing to draw attention to ourselves. He's taught us how to steward our possessions in a way that glorifies God and brings benefit to the world around us and is also good for us. He's done all of these things for us. And then we come to this moment here in chapter 7. And I think that one of the things that will happen to us if we really submit ourselves to the way of Jesus is that we'll have a natural desire to help people around us. And so I want to throw this question up on the screen here. Uh, how do we help the people who are closest to us? When our hearts begin to burst with the kingdom of God, that's one of the things that will happen is that we'll start going, but I want to see other people step into this same thing that I have come to know. And Jesus fortunately anticipates that desire and gives us good instructions for it. It's Matthew chapter 7. If you're there, why don't you let me know by saying, I'm there. Jesus says this, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrites? 
First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't give dogs what is sacred, Jesus says. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. But this is what you're going to do. You're going to ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, Jesus says, if your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the law and the prophets, brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, thanks be to God. Let's pray. It's good to be in your presence, oh God. It's good to be gathered here as your children. It's good to be assembled together as the body of Christ, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're grateful for that. And so we say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, pour out your Spirit upon us this morning. The Spirit comes upon us and opens our minds to the wisdom of God. So we say, Spirit, open our minds. God, when the Spirit comes upon us, our ears are open to the wonders of God. So we say, Spirit, open our ears. And when the Spirit comes upon us, we're able to declare that Jesus is Lord. So we say, teach us to say Jesus is Lord. And when the Spirit falls upon us, we call God our Abba. You go from being distant, autocratic deity to near to us, the one who awakens us to our true identity in you. And so we're so grateful for all of those things. We say, Spirit of the living God, come upon us. We thank you for these words of Scripture that have been recorded for us. And we thank you that they are not just, as Moses says, these are not just idle words for you. They are your life. And by them, you'll live long. So this morning, we pray that we would come to see that these words of Jesus are not just idle words for us, but they are the living word of God spoken by the living word himself. They are our life. And we pray that in the hearing of them, that we would come alive. So grant that, we pray. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Jesus says, don't judge. Everybody say, don't judge. Don't judge or you too will be judged. This is kind of a timely passage, I would say, for the church in our day. If you ever look at any of the polling data or the surveys that people take when they ask them questions about like, what do you think about Christians? Do you know what mostly people will say? Mostly people have a negative view of Christians. And you know what they'll say? Like what consistently comes right to the top of the list when they're asked like, why don't you like Christians? You know what they'll say? They're judgmental. Those Christians are so judgy. is what they'll say. And nobody likes being judged. We've got four kids, Ethan, Gabe, uh, Bella and Liam, and I can remember some years ago, we were sitting at the dinner table. The kids were pretty little. I think Bella was like five or six, maybe. And we were having some conversation, and little Bella, she shot back at one of her brothers. She goes, don't be so judgy. She was five. So where did you learn that, you know? But we just don't like being judged. We don't feel like we're being criticized in any way. Like Mandy and I, one of our favorite uh, television shows, is the great uh, British baking show. Do you guys watch this show at all? You don't? You don't watch TV? 
Maybe you're just not like really into UK stuff over there. But the Great British Baking Show, it's like one of our favorites. And you know, they got this guy, he's like this expert in baking, Paul Hollywood. And Paul is like this intimidating figure, you know? And so these folks that are on the show, the contestants will make something that they worked really hard on, a loaf of bread of some kind, you know? And Paul Hollywood will come around and they'll cut like a little piece of it and they'll give it to Paul. And you can see they're like trembling, visceral terror in their eyes as Paul is sort of stoically chewing the bread in front of them. And then Paul will say to them, your bread is stodgy. And you see them just fall to pieces all of a sudden. They're weeping. Why are they doing that? Because nobody wants to be judged. Nobody likes being criticized. Nobody likes feeling as though they've been pushed outside of the inner circle because of some negative pronouncement that has been given to them. And Jesus knows this. And so he says, do not judge or what will happen? You too will be judged. Now this ought to create though, just a tiny bit of tension for us in terms of the rest of the text of scripture, because it seems like when you read the scriptures, there is an appropriate place for something that we might call judgment. Listen to this. This is uh, the apostle Paul in first Corinthians chapter six. Paul says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will, what does it say? Judge the what? the world. <laughs> Paul seems to think that that's what the saints are going to do. If you're to judge the world, don't you think you're competent to judge in trivial cases, disputes that break out in the community? Verse three, don't you know that we will judge angels? To which we say, no, Paul, we didn't know that until you told us, but we're going to judge angels. Paul says, how much more the things of this life? It seems in the imagination of the apostle Paul, there actually is an appropriate place for some kind of judgment. Or you think about Jesus here, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother and sister sins, what are you going to do? You go and you point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. Verse 16, but if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, uh, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So just like Paul what Jesus is saying is that there's like this appropriate place for some form of judgment. So then what is he getting at here in Matthew chapter seven by saying, don't judge or you too will be judged. The New Testament scholar R.T. France says this. I think this is really helpful. He says that Jesus' emphasis is on a criticism. Everybody say criticism. It's a criticism of other people's failures. Next slide. What is forbidding, forbidden here is the sort of fault finding mentality and speech that is likely to rebound against the one who exercises it. And we have all experienced this, haven't we? And we've seen it with our own eyes. What happens when you launch criticism and fault finding out, somehow criticism and fault finding have a way of bouncing back to you. Those of you that have kids, you have seen this with your children, haven't you? Some of you say, well, you always do this. And the kid will say, the other kid will say back, well, you always do this. And then it becomes like this escalation of like, I know you are, but what am I, right? And you know this, maybe you were doing this actually on the way over to church this morning, you know? You start like creating this vicious cycle with one another. Or those of you that are married couples in the room, you know, you never load the dishwasher the right way. Well, you never put the toilet paper roll the right way, which as we all know, under. I'm not, 
Am I the only one that does it that way? Well, that is the right way, I'm just telling. Well, you're always leaving piles of clothes laying around. Well, you've got this stuff over here. Well, whenever you say this, this thing happens and all of a sudden there's like this escalation, right? That takes place or extrapolated out to our society. Think about our political conversation at the moment. (laughs) You know, Republicans always, oh yeah, well, you know, you Democrats always, and on and on and on it goes. And the problem is that nobody actually ever gets healed or is helped in the process. Are you with me this morning, church? And Jesus is calling us out of all of that, that criticizing fault-finding mentality that just attacks other people and tears them down and doesn't actually build them up. Jesus is calling us out of all of that. And how is he doing that? Well, this is the first thing I want to put in front of you this morning for your consideration. Let's just say this, that there is a world of difference between a critical condemning spirit and a humble, wise, genuinely helpful spirit. There's a world of difference between a critical condemning spirit and a humble, wise, genuinely helpful spirit. I'll give you an example of this. About a year and a half or so maybe ago, my dad was like, my parents live up in Wisconsin. Uh, They're going, they're in their late 60s now. And my dad was struggling with this sore throat that he just couldn't seem to shake. Kind of a sore throat and a cough and it was really frustrating to him and he kept doing everything that he knew how to do. You know, he's exercising and he's eating right and trying to get good rest and it just wouldn't go away. And then we saw them over Thanksgiving break. This was two Thanksgivings ago. And what had been kind of a nagging sore throat had actually turned into a visible lump that was starting to protrude from the side of his throat. So he said, dad, you got to get into the doctor. And you know, he's a human male. And so he didn't want to do that. We got him to do it. Dad, go see your doctor. And so we left and uh, Friday after Thanksgiving, he goes into the doctor and the doctor runs a bunch of tests on him and came back and said, okay, so here's where you're at. Uh, This is not just kind of a regular little sore throat. What you have is a stage one lymphoma. And fortunately for you, we caught it really early and we've got a good team of doctors here. And here's the treatment plan. If you just follow the treatment plan, we can eradicate this lymphoma. We're very, very optimistic about that. And so he spent six months I went through six rounds of chemotherapy and some other things. And thanks be to God, my dad came out of the woods cancer-free. Hallelujah. What was the doctor doing there? The doctor was not looking at my dad and going, a sore throat? You big idiot. How could you be so stupid as to, what, cancer? You're such a fool. You're such a moron. How could you develop such a thing? The doctor is not doing anything like that. The doctor is like in this position, a a position that he has acquired through all of his training and skills to see what was going on with my dad and to be very careful and deliberate about how exactly we're going to take care of that thing so that I can get you back on the path to healing. I want to suggest to you this morning, friends, that that's what Jesus is trying to lead us into. He's trying to lead us into this kind of posture of the heart, a sort of spirit that allows us to see the flaws in other people without tearing them down, that we can actually be helpful to them, which is what Jesus says in verse five. Watch this. Now, we're so quick to always say, you know, well, you got to like take the plank out of your own eye. But verse five, Jesus actually says that we're called to remove the speck from our brother or our sister's 
I. And there are lots of great examples of this through church history. I think about St. Dominic in the 13th century, the founder of the Dominican order of monks, who was a man who was dedicated to holiness and righteousness and the fear of the Lord. And one of his colleagues, a monk by the name of Paul of Venice, said this about St. Dominic. He said, he reprimanded us so justly and affectionately that no one was ever upset by his correction. I mean, have you ever experienced that in your life? It's so very rare, by the way. It's so rare that when a person corrects us, we actually feel built up by it and emboldened by it and empowered by it. Usually we detect so much self-righteousness and we have so much self-righteousness that the whole interaction falls apart. But Paul says that this guy, St. Dominic, reprimanded so justly that nobody was ever upset by his correction. Takes a lot of spiritual maturity to be that kind of a person, but you know it when you're in the orbit of this sort of person. I remember years ago when I was pastoring in Denver, this was about 10, 11 or so years ago now, those first couple years of preaching every week, man, I was just, I remember feeling like I just had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. And every week felt like this fight and this struggle just to get cogent words out of my mouth. And then in the summer of 2012, something like clicked with me. And I started feeling like I was figuring out how to preach. And it was such a joyful season for me. We were preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes and I was falling in love with the study and putting together these messages that I felt like were really compelling. And as I'm preaching, I just like, I'm feeling so much joy in it over the course of that summer that my messages started to get like longer and longer, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 35 minutes. And in my mind, I grew up with long-winded preachers. So I just thought if you want to prove that you can do it as a preacher, as close to an hour as you can get as possible, that's a good thing. And so 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 55 minutes. And I am in the middle of that whole space just thinking that everybody loves Andrew. What a great preacher, you know. And I drive home thinking I am crushing it. You know, I'm doing the will of God. And I got lunch one of those weeks with a guy who was a leader in our church, man, whose spiritual maturity and humility I greatly respected. And we were catching up about the church and how things were going and all of that. And he said to me, he goes, Andrew, he goes, you know, I'm, uh, I'm really heartened to see you doing better and better with your preaching. And I said, thank you. <laughs> he said, you know, they're getting clearer and your points are really good and you're a really talented preacher and it's fun to see you kind of round into shape with your gift there. And I'm just like sitting here basking kind of in the compliment fest, you know, that's coming from him. And he said, but can I say one thing to you? And I said, no. <laughs> he goes, can I, can I say one thing to you? And I said, sure. He goes, I just, what I've noticed is that as you've gotten more comfortable in your preaching, your messages have gotten longer and longer and longer. And I said, I know. And he said, but I don't, I just want to say that I'm not sure that that's a good thing. Because you know, when the church gathers together, we're gathered to worship Christ Jesus, the Lord, to magnify his name and to fall down at his feet. And your preaching, as good as it is, is starting to eclipse all of the other things that we do in worship. And it's starting, and I'm just going to say this as gently as I can, it's starting to feel like our worship services are more about Andrew than they are about Jesus. But I knew in my spirit that he was right. 
and he didn't fault find and he didn't criticize and he didn't tear me down, but he did point out the truth. And he was clear eyed enough to see the speck in my eye. And so he carefully, wisely, humbly plucked the speck out and got me adjusted again to reality. I'm suggesting to you this morning that this is what Jesus is saying to us, that we can become these kinds of human beings. Dallas Willard says it so beautifully when he says that we don't have to, indeed we cannot surrender the valid practice of distinguishing and discerning how things are in order to avoid condemning others. We can, however, train ourselves to hold people responsible, watch this, without attacking their worth as human beings. Can you imagine if we lived in a world like this? Can you imagine if our families were like this? If our workplaces were like this? Can you imagine if our churches were like this? I think that we're so fortunate as a church community to be in that kind of a church community. I remember coming on staff at New Life here almost six years ago now, and I had so much terror about whether or not I could make it and do it here. And I remember the first time I was asked to be service host, like what Pastor Brad Baker is doing this morning. I was asked to be service host for Pastor Brady, the Pastor Brady Boyd. And I was just as nervous as a cat. I slept not at all the night before. How am I gonna hold those moments? And I wanna make sure that I did a, do a good job, you know, and we stood there together, he and I did on the front row. And I remember getting up and I probably blacked out saying all the things that I said. And I remember connecting with Brady in between the services. And I remember him saying, man, you did such a good job this morning. Well done. You know, one thing that you might think about for the second service is da, 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 da. And it's changed my mind. Oh, okay, I see that now. And I do the second service better than the first service. Why? Because I've got somebody in my life who's not tearing me down, but he saw the little flaw and was able to give me the adjustment that I needed. And that, by the way, is just who Pastor Brady is as the day is long. We have this saying on our staff, EBI, even better if. And Brady's the master at that. He'll never tear you down, never criticize you, never diminish your self-worth, but will always say, you know, one thing that you might think about, or that was so good, you know, even better if would be. And what it does is it emboldens the team around him, which then emboldens us to embolden all of the people around us. There's like this cascade effect of holiness. Friends, we can become these kinds of people. So I wanna go back to the question that we opened the sermon with this morning. How do we help the people closest to us? How do we help the people closest to us? And I wanna suggest to you that we ought to modify that question to something like this. How do we become the kind of people who can help the people closest to us. And Jesus gives us four things. I'm gonna draw these right from the text this morning and then we'll head to communion. Here's the first thing. How do we become the kind of people who can help the people closest to us? Number one, look in the mirror. Everybody say, look in the mirror. Watch what Jesus says here. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What's the first move that we're going to make if we're gonna be genuinely helpful to the people around us? What are we gonna do? Look in the mirror first. Everybody knows when they're being treated in a self-righteous way by somebody else. By somebody who's just holier than thou, 
standing on a pedestal, looking down at all you plebeian hordes down there, you idiots who can't seem to do it right. And when there's a sense of self-righteousness baked into our attempts to help other people, it's always going to come off in the right way. So what does Jesus say? He says, you hypocrite. Don't you go trying to take the little speck out of somebody's eye when all the time you've got this big freaking board in your own eye. How are you going to help them when you've got your own stuff that you haven't dealt with? And I want to say to you this morning that it is no part of the Christian task to go around trying to manage everybody else's holiness. It's no, it's a, you can give God praise for that because we do need to hear that. It's no part of the Christian task to go around trying to manage everybody else's holiness. Think about what the psalmist says over and over in the Psalms. Search, search me, oh God, and know my heart. He says, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Not all those people out there. Not search them, oh God, and know their hearts because they're screwing up so bad these days. The psalmist says, no, it's me. I'm the first sinner in the room here. The apostle Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, examine who? You're not supposed to go around examining everybody else. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? We ought to have ourselves under the microscope before we have everybody else under the microscope. Yeah, amen to that. (laughs) I'm telling you guys, we need this. And you know what will happen if we do this? If we're rigorously, like we have a rigorous kind of scrutiny about ourselves. Number one is that we just won't have time to judge everybody else around us. We're going to be preoccupied enough with our own stuff that we're dealing with that to come and try to criticize you, we just don't have the bandwidth for it. But number two, what will happen is that when we are in a position to point out other people's failures and flaws, we'll actually have the humility enough to do it gently because we know about our own stuff. And when you're approached with humility, it makes all the difference in the world. But when you come with that critical condemning spirit, it always goes sideways. Dallas Willard actually says it like this. He says that condemnation, that willingness to put other people down, pointing out their failures and flaws, he says that is the board in your eye. And when that desire to beat other people down is gone from you, you'll actually see clearly to really be able to help them. So number one, you look in the mirror first. Number two, you stop using good things to manipulate others into doing what you want them to do. Yeah, this one's going to hurt in a second here. Watch what Jesus says here, verse six. He says, don't give dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, I know that sounds a little bit insulting, dogs and pigs, but I don't know. I got a dog. Y'all have a dog? I got this cute little mini golden doodle named Winnie, and she's just the sweetest thing in the world. And I'm a huge fan of bacon, by the way, too. So dogs and pigs are not bad things. It's just that if I try to give Winnie, my little dog, a Bible because I'm concerned about her spiritual health, she's just not really going to know what to do with it, is she? And I'm going to wind up looking like an idiot because I thought that the Bible might actually help Winnie. I need to give Winnie the things that actually help Winnie. I need to give her dog food and walks and love. That's what Winnie needs to become all she's called to be. The dogs and the pigs aren't bad. The problem is we keep trying to use good things to get other people to do what we want them to do. 
So let me just say it to you as plainly as I can. If you're in the room this morning and you're concerned about your husband's spiritual life, don't give him as a birthday gift the power of a praying husband. It's just not going to go well. You know why that is? Because it's a gift with a criticism baked into it. And he'll feel it. And as good-hearted as it is, you're wanting to help this guy, he's going to feel the condemnation that you're shoveling his way. Or how many times, friends, everybody in the room has done this. How many times have you been sitting in a worship service and you have thought to yourself, you know who really needs to hear this? And you send it on to your wayward kid or your coworker who's messing up or whatever it is. And has that ever gone well for you? No, it's never gone well for you. So let's quit doing it all together. Jesus says, don't give dogs out of sacred. Don't throw the pearls to the pigs. Give people what they need, not what you want them to have. And watch God work through that. So number one, we're going to look in the mirror first. Number two, we're not going to use good things to manipulate other people. Number three, we're going to put people in God's hands. Everybody say, put people in God's hands. Watch where Jesus takes us next in verse seven. He says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. How about this? Instead of all of our clever strategies for trying to get people to change, what if, entertain me for a second, what if we turned people over to the God who's actually capable of bringing change in people's lives. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit that when he comes, he will convict the world with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. He convicts the world. Can we convict the world? No, you, you can't get into other people's hearts. You can't search out their motives. You can't bring them to a place of repentance, but you know who can? So what do we do with the people that we love, the people that are closest to us? We turn them over to God. We stop criticizing them. We stop fault finding. We stop manipulating them. And instead we pray for them. So we look in the mirror. We stop using the good things. We turn other people over to God. And then the last thing is this. Number four, we do to others as we would be done by. We follow the golden rule. Verse 12, Jesus says, so in everything do to others but you would have them do unto you for this sums up the law and the prophets. At the end of the day, we ought to treat other people the way that we would want to be treated. And how do we want to be treated? With mercy and with grace and with humility and with kindness. And Jesus says that somehow when you do that, it opens the door for God to move. I want to say to you this morning that I think people need our presence and they need our compassion long before they need our good advice. Can I get an amen from somebody? We're called to be with people and their stuff because that's how God was with us. Scripture says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus came and dwelt with us. And along the way, he taught us things, but mostly he lived our life with us and he died our death and he was raised to new life and he brought us with him. And I, I learned this lesson the hard way a long time ago, 23 years ago this month. Mandy, my wife, her dad passed away one week after I proposed to her. 
got down on a knee in March of 2000, asked her to marry me. It was this incredibly happy time. Remember our families getting together to talk about the wedding and plan, and we had so much to look forward to. And one week after that, her dad on a Monday morning died of a heart attack. One of the most painful things, and she'd tell you this, one of the most painful things she's ever walked through in her life. And you've got grief, natural grief that you gotta deal with, but we had the wedding to look forward to. And so Mandy will tell you, she took her grief and she kind of just set it over here for a bit. Wedding's coming up, this is gonna be fun and all that. So August 6th of 2000, her and I got married and we moved down to Tulsa, Oklahoma to begin our life together. And that's when it hit for her. All of a sudden, all that grief and all that ache and all that pain started coming back. And I watched that have a really profound effect on her. The girl that I thought I had married was like collapsing before my eyes. And one of the things I loved about Mandy, it helped me fall in love with her, is I'd watch her in services like this, worship services. Hands lifted high to the Lord and tears streaming down her face, moved by God. And she got angry, like you get when you're grieving. Angry at the Lord and frustrated. God, why? Why? Why couldn't you save my dad? Why? Why couldn't you, couldn't you have held off for like six months so that at least my dad could walk me down the aisle as a bitter time for her? And I'll tell you how that impacted me as a young husband. As I'm watching her walk through all of this and I got scared for myself, scared for my marriage, scared for our life together, scared about where it was all going to go. And so I started in my way kind of helping Mandy. Hey babe, do you think that if you did X, Y, and Z that maybe it would make things better? Well, what if you prayed more? What if you read the Bible more? What if you just tried harder? And I watched her in that. Why? Because there's criticism baked all into all of that. Judgment baked into all of that. And I watched us over about the first year and a half or so of our marriage. I mean, we just could not figure it out. And I got so frustrated. And I remember collapsing on my knees in prayer one morning. This was the pivot point for me. I collapsed on my knees one morning in prayer. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to do anymore. And I've come to the end of my ability here, apparently. But that woman was your daughter before she was my wife. And I made a promise to her to love her and to cherish her, to keep her, to serve her in sickness or in health, for better or for worse, till death do us part. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna stop all of this manipulation and I'm gonna start trusting you and loving her again. And I'll never forget it. That night, we were sitting on the couch, watching TV, came to a little commercial break and I muted it. And I felt for the first time, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I felt for the first time in a really long time, genuine compassion begin to well up in my heart for her. And I turned to her and I said, babe, it's been like almost two years now since your dad passed away. How are you doing? And I'll never forget her just saying, I'm not good, it hurts. And I said to her, I am so, so sorry. And I love you and I'm for you and I'm committed to you. We were friends before we were a married couple and I'm gonna be your friend forever. Would you please just let me know what you need from me so that I can help you? It changed everything. It was like this moment of coming together genuinely helping one another. Friends, we can be this for each other. Now, I know all of you in this room, you've got people that you love and that you care about and you're concerned about, what am I going to do? How am I going to get them? 
to live the right way? And how am I gonna help them rise up in righteousness and all of that? And I'm saying to you this morning, stop with all of the strategizing. Start with trust. (laughs) Start with abandoning people to God. Start with walking in love and grace and humility towards others and watch what God will do with that. Can you stand this morning? And would you now just begin to welcome the Holy Spirit into your life, into your heart, into all those places where it feels tense with other people, relationships that it feels like, like we've all got them, relationships where it feels like I so long for that person to turn the corner. I wanna help them figure out what they need to figure out. I wanna help them return to the Lord. I wanna help them see this thing. And Jesus, we pray that you'd cleanse us. We pray this morning that you would wash self-righteousness out of us. All of those errant habits where we wind up condemning other people and putting them down and diminishing their humanity. We pray that you'd wash all of that out of us this morning. And we pray that you would make us as you are. You're God in a body who comes and you don't come criticizing us. The son of man didn't come to judge, you said, but you came to set the captives free. You came to love us. You came to pour out your life unto death for us. And that's what's made all the difference in the world. And so we pray that you would make us like you this morning. What else can we pray? Holy Spirit, make us like Jesus. Help us lose self-righteousness. Help us lose all of our arrogance. Help us lose all of that. And we pray that you would make us humble, wounded healers in the world. And so we remember before you, Lord Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, that you, after you'd given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. And you said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It's your gift to us, the gift of yourself, your presence, your love that makes all the difference. So this morning, as we come to the table, we pray that you would mold us again by the gift of God. Take up new space in us, Jesus. Save our lives, we're asking. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, I'm gonna invite our servers to come forward this morning to serve communion. Communion stations will be down up front. Here you're gonna come, the ushers will dismiss you row by row. You'll come forward to receive the elements, take them back to your seat. And then in just a few moments, Pastor Brad will lead us to the table. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.